Well, good morning, everybody. We're in uh, 1 Corinthians for four Sundays in this room. Appreciated the reading of Scripture uh, this morning. You've got a good, clear, articulate voice. Uh, not to make you self-conscious, but I mean, it was really... Uh, a helpful reading of God's word. Um, I think we should begin with prayer, and uh, I don't know if it's out of my Baptist or Presbyterian background. I'm, I'm going to become, by the time I get to heaven, I think I will have circ- circled through all the denominations. <laughs> but, um, well, uh, that we still have some years to go here. Um, uh, but I think we should pray for our, um, our, our friends in England uh, and for what they're going through and uh, the heightened state of awareness. You, you know, you, um, this being the Lord's Day and uh, thousands attending worship services there and, uh, in England. And uh, you know, after 9-11, there was such a tremendous surge of church attendance in America so many people looking for for answers, for a sense of hope, and uh, that's taking place there. We're a bit removed from it. We don't necessarily feel maybe the intensity of it, but we know that the the gospel is going out in England today um, in the face of this uh, unnerving, unsettling um, terrorism. And then I think we should, uh, and the reason I'm, I'm saying the Baptist and Presbyterian is because I'm going to open it up for prayer. Um, I find Episcopalians are reluctant to enter into that type of open prayer. But I would encourage you. Um, it's not the formality of your words that count. It's um, simply being in the presence of God and asking for God's help. It's as simple as that. Uh, and then I think we should, again, pray for BBS. This is such a great opportunity. We're reminded here of the preparations and for the many that have been involved and have worked hard to get ready for this week. And, um, you know, one of, the, uh, one of the lessons, I think, that we gain from the Jesus Storybook Bible is that um, how we tell the gospel at any stage is exceedingly important. Um, so it's um, how we frame the gospel, how we tell it, how we back it up with our life um, at every stage of life is so significant. So I'm opening up for prayer. I'll close, but would you lead us in prayer um, for those two concerns or and for others that come to your mind? Let's pray together. Give us grateful hearts, Almighty God, for the gift of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, who by his blessed passion, precious death, mighty resurrection, and glorious ascension, opened the door to eternal life to all of those who call upon his holy name, even such lowly sinners as us. Holy God, in the midst of all the pain that's going on in Europe right now, I thank you because I know that you're right there with every heart that's broken, every hurt that they're experiencing. Uh, you're right there to comfort them and to uh, be with them, to comfort them and cry with them and to laugh. So, Lord, thank you so much for all that you're doing for being there. 
Lord, thank you for Andrew's sermon this morning. Thank you for the teaching and the, the preaching that we have in this place. And thank you especially just for the presence of your spirit and the fellowship here and with the children that we listen to off and on as we're sitting in this class. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray together. Amen. Well, three things I'd like to get across in the next few minutes we have together. I'd like to intro uh, this letter of Paul's to the church at Corinth. And I would like to talk a little bit about how he uses the word call in the opening section of chapter 1. What a call theology means. And then thirdly, I'd like to talk briefly about how he centers everything in this letter in the cross of Jesus Christ. I guess if there's a key text, it's in the second chapter, the beginning, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so those three things uh, are sort of on my docket, um, and I encourage you to, to raise your hand or just to speak up at any particular point. Um, the introduction uh, is on your... Uh, study guide on the one side of it, uh, the um, entitled side, Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. The Apostle Paul was probably the first New Testament writer to put pen to paper. And I thought you might find this just interesting. I need to be reminded uh, of this in the order. Uh, when he wrote Thessalonians in the early 50s, that was probably the first letter, followed by Galatians, 1 Corinthians, Philippians, 2 Corinthians, Romans, Colossians, Ephesians, 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy. All his letters spanned only a decade, early 50s to early 60s. Ten years, um, giving us an awful lot of our New Testament. Um, an interesting uh, thought that this there was... And these letters give shape to our theology, um, but I would suggest to you there's nothing here that is not in the Gospels, and there's nothing in the Gospels that isn't in the Old Testament. There's a sense in which all of this hangs together, uh, and uh, the, the Gospel is there in Genesis, the Gospel is there in Matthew, and the Gospel is there in Corinthians. And when uh, the Apostle Paul penned this letter to the Corinthians, he included us. I'm reading from the first chapter. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be his holy people. And in this phrase together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. One of the things that's really interesting about um, the church at Corinth is that they felt, it seems that they felt fairly self-sufficient, that they were an entity unto themselves, satisfied with who they were in Christ. Uh, we experienced a little bit of that. We loved the church in New York City um, that we were involved in. We've been here about 10 years now, and four of those years were spent in heavy involvement with Central Presbyterian Church at 64th and Park in Manhattan. But there's a sense in which uh, the Corinthian issue 
is a New York City issue. When you're in New York City, you feel you're at the center and everything else is marginal and everything else is peripheral. Uh, you're there. And uh, the real challenge for a city in New York City, for a church in New York City, is to have a global church consciousness. To really be thinking of the church worldwide. Uh, because there's just so much pressure and so much intensity to just be focused on where you are and where the church is. And Corinth had something of that same dilemma. They felt that they were kind of at the center. And, uh, and Paul will reiterate throughout this idea that, no, you're not alone. You're not your own tribe. Uh, there is a global church uh, so together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, number three on your um, outline, in many ways, Corinth was a surprisingly postmodern urban center. Uh, this isn't coming from me alone. This is coming from uh, Tony Thistleton, who uh, is huge. 1,400-page uh, commentary on the book of Corinth has now been published in a very accessible uh, couple hundred page pastoral commentary. Uh, so the technical commentary and the pastoral commentary, Tony Thistleton has uh, kind of devoted his life to the study of this church and his commentaries are, are excellent. And he frames it as a postmodern urban center. And therefore it makes it interesting for us in looking at the issues that uh, Paul addressed because we address many of those same issues. It was competitive. Pluralistic, self-sufficient, self-congratulatory, success-oriented, obsessed with peer group acceptance and status, a cosmopolitan commercial crossroads, and brought together people and products and philosophies from around the world. An exciting place to be, uh, a really interesting place to serve. Uh, by all accounts, it was an oversexed culture, well known for its temple to Epaphrodite, the goddess of love that sat high above the city in the Acrocorinth. Sex in the city of Corinth assumed the status of a god by fostering a spirituality of sensuality that captivated the imagination and the bodies of many of its citizens and tourists. Really interesting place to serve and to work to establish the church. Um, theologian Anthony Thistleton says, all this provides an embarrassingly close model of a postmodern context for the gospel in our own times, even given the huge historical differences and distances in so many other respects. So if we look at this letter to the church at Corinth, we will find, I think, reflected in it some of the same issues that we have as we think about uh, what it is to be the biblical community. When we preach today, most of the sermons at the Advent and most of the sermons in the city, I think, are directed to whom? When we preach, do we preach to the community or do we preach to the individual? We invariably preach to the individual. What we find in Paul's letters is preaching to the community, giving shape to the household of faith. 
thinking through what the gospel looks like in the life of the body of Christ. That's a really important distinction to grasp because I do think that we need more attention to the shape of the biblical community. Uh, so often, I, one of the great blessings of the Advent is understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this, I think, is laid out, laid down time and time again in every venue. The leadership of the denomination may not always do that. In fact, you might even find a reserve about mentioning Jesus Christ. In another church, in another denomination, not too long ago, I attended their uh, anniversary service. And they had invited uh, the local rabbi as well to attend the service. But it was a Christian worship service here in the city. They were celebrating their anniversary and they had had close relations with the synagogue for a time because they occupied uh, their space uh, because of a necessity. Well, the pastor preached. He preached on Hebrews 11, uh, preached for 30 minutes without mentioning the name Jesus. I sat there thinking, that is so difficult to do in Christian worship, to actually preach that long without mentioning Jesus or mentioning Christ? And he cut the message just before Hebrews 12, that we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the shame of the cross. Uh, he, he cut the message just before that. Now, his rationale for doing that was so as not to show disrespect to the rabbi who was in attendance. Meanwhile, I would think that the rabbi thought, this is a Christian worship service. Why would you be at all bashful about mentioning the name Jesus? That's what you are about. I say all of that to emphasize a particular point. And uh, in the first 10 verses of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul mentions Jesus nine times in 10 verses, mentions Corinth once. So you might say there's, there's almost a 10 to 1 ratio of place Corinth to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Christ, 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 no, no bashfulness or hesitancy about a full, explicit confession of Jesus Christ. I printed those uh, verses out. Uh, they're on the right column, called to be saints. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God in our brother Sosthenes. Now, Sosthenes is interesting because uh, in Acts 18, which describes Paul coming to Corinth, finding Aquila and Priscilla who had been kicked out of Rome because of Claudius' 80-49 um, uh, edict to get rid of the Jews in Rome, and that included Christian Jews as well as um, non-converted Christian uh, Jews. It included just Jews, the ethnicity. Paul's habit always in going into a city was to go first to the synagogue. And invariably, he was invited to teach, to lecture. 
And he used that occasion to explicitly bring up Jesus Christ. Always controversial. The situation that's described in Acts 18 is that um, the first synagogue president accepted Christ. Apparently, Sosthenes was the second synagogue president, and he too accepted Christ. When the Jews brought uh, Paul before their council um, and asked Galileo to uh, interview, uh, to challenge Paul, he refused because he said it has nothing to do with civil authority or civil law. This is a religious thing. It's a Jewish thing. I don't want anything to do with it. And as they were exiting that meeting, they beat up Sosthenes. So Sosthenes, the second synagogue president, uh, was asked to uh, was uh, was beaten up, and uh, and here's the person now uh, alluded to in Corinthians, uh, my brother Sosthenes. And it's on his name that he's approaching the church at Corinth. Verse 2, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. I therefore, therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, obviously, Paul's making it a matter of explicit attention to refer to the Lord Jesus Christ, right? It's actually ten times in the ten verses. Why? Why would he see the need to so explicitly emphasize Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, over and over again in these 10 verses. Well, the culture in which he finds himself worships so many different gods, both the ones they find in little niches in their own internal gods, their own success, their own desires, their own... So the singularity of the one and only God in the Acts 4.12, there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. So there's that factor. What else would lead him to emphasize Jesus Christ so intensively? Just so there's no doubt where he stood. Okay. His own personal conviction. And I think along with that, his expectation that their faith was solely, singularly, absolutely, essentially in Jesus Christ. Not in Paul, not in Apollos, 
not in Cephas, not in some human person that was now teaching them, but in Jesus Christ and him alone. Maybe also in this 10 to 1 ratio of Corinth to Christ, I guess you'd say it the other way around, Christ to Corinth in the 10 to 1 ratio, uh, would be the factor that uh, their pride of place in Corinth was nothing compared to their relationship to Jesus Christ. That's who defined them. That's to whom they identified. That is their, their sense of place, their sense of status, their sense of esteem, their sense of, uh, uh, of wherewithal that they are in Christ Jesus. And here status and self-esteem and a sense of privilege and experience is, is such a big factor in the Corinthian reality. And Paul wants that rooted in Christ Jesus. And he belabors the fact that they've got everything already. There is no need for the aspiration of something extra something special, something more spiritual, more emotional, more exciting. So it's looking outside of themselves rather than navel-gazing. Well, it's looking to Jesus Christ as the all-sufficient one whom they've already received everything that they're already going to receive, that that it's it's complete. Notice uh, in verse 7, Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Now, how would we interpret that for ourselves? Isn't it quite common, quite normal, for us to feel and to bemoan and to lament being unfulfilled? to uh, articulate aspirations because of our dissatisfaction with where we are now, with who we are, and that uh, we really want this, we want that, we want that experience, we want that relationship. And sort of we feed on our own sense of dissatisfaction with ourselves or with our situation or with our circumstances. Uh, internally, we are very Corinthian. Uh, it comes with the territory. It comes with our upbringing. It comes with our ethos. It comes with our culture. And uh, this speaks to us, too. Jesus is Lord. He's our king. And therefore, he has rule and reign over our life. And providentially and sovereignly, he guides us, gives us what we need, challenges us with what we ought to be challenged with. So it can speak to us, too, of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ in defining our life. Should I be giving you opportunity here to speak to that, to comment about it? Um, It just it would be interesting to just dwell and meditate on the importance that Paul gives to Jesus Christ and the assur- and he's addressing now the Corinthians without a sense of problem this uh, this preamble um, this preface to his book uh, 
uh, to the letter, is, is designed, I think, to, to be, look at what you have. Whereas our, you know, our human tendency is to look at what we don't have and feel we ought to have. But look at what you have in Christ. So this leads me also to to uh, to look at the the emphasis that he in, uh, on the word call. You notice that in verse one, Paul is called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Um, in verse two, to the church of God in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, and called to be His holy people. Now, how would you compare called to be an apostle and called to be His holy people? together with everyone everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, And now, uh, also in verse 9, God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, it's the same. It's the same Greek word. It's the... um, it's the same word. I think we labor under uh, a misunderstood notion of the call of God. And I'm right at the center of that misunderstanding. Because I work in an institution where, as part of the admission process, you need to be especially called. Uh, I think there's one calling. We're all called. We're all called to salvation, service, sacrifice, simplicity. We're all called. And there is no higher calling. There's not an elite kind of calling and a kind of ordinary kind of calling. There's one calling. We're all called to salvation, service, sacrifice, and simplicity in Jesus Christ. We're all called. Now, that calling takes on specific aspects, and in Paul's case, called to be an apostle. But he puts that calling on the same level as called to be uh, the holy people, the fellowship of God. As you read Corinthians um, through this week, uh, and as you bring your Bibles next week, uh, look at how Paul uses the word call and how there is a universal shared understanding of that call. Uh, Now, I I mean, to be fair, not everybody would agree with me on that, um, but I'm not shy about also emphasizing it. Um, I guess one of the banes of ministry is to continually continually emphasize to people that have been saved by Jesus Christ that they are as called as I am. That my calling is not higher than their calling. And the specificity of my calling is that I should preach and teach the word of God. But God doesn't listen to my prayers. 
in any other way than the way he listens to your prayers. And I wish that the body of Christ understood that, uh, and this is going to be a great emphasis in the letter to Corinth, is that we're all gifted. And that we're all called to use our gifts for his kingdom work. And that wherever God places us in his call on our life, that's holy vocation. That's real work. That the calling of a mother and father, the calling of uh, the accountant, the calling of uh, the public servant, the, that's holy work. That's your specific, specific aspect of God's call. Uh, and I think we all ought to feel the same sort of uh, experiential, emotional calling in the work that we do. I don't think pastors um, ought to feel any more special or any more elite in that calling. So some of what I say under B alludes to that. Let's turn it over. Um, Well, I don't subject. Well, I I can be facetious here at this point, but I don't want to be subject my theology to a focus group um, or to vote. Um, uh, I don't maybe at the school, um, but I uh, I think I, I, I to me it's just a, such a readily apparent New Testament truth that there's not two different types of believers um, and that we have to be very careful with our language of ministry because ministry is not confined to the work I do. It's the work we all do in Christ. And, uh, you know, I've been forever in the churches I've served trying to um, build up team ministry and the every member ministry and the shared leadership and the gifts of the Spirit uh, uh, to have uh, 80% spectators and 20% participants is just not a New Testament understanding. It just isn't. You can't find that church in the New Testament. Uh, well, Paul came to Corinth, and uh, I, you know, I do hope that you'll you'll read the letter um, in. Verses leading up to chapter 2 and verse 1. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. One of the big things going on in Corinth is the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of the world. And the spirit of the age versus the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, I came to you with the demonstration of the power of the Spirit of God. And these verses in chapter 2, verse 1, they're on the first column of uh, the back page. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. Now, that can be somewhat uh, misleading. Because Paul is, if he's anything, is eloquent. <laughs> and Paul is exceedingly wise in his communication. What is going on here is a kind of battle between classical rhetoric and sophist rhetoric. 
the sophist, and this is really understood within our own times, the classical Cicero, Aristotle, their concern was to convince people of the truth through a means that honored the truth. The sophists were concerned to convince people any which way they could, whether it be fake news, whether it be bullying, whether it be propaganda. So here you have the classical form of eloquence and rhetoric, and you have the sophist form of rhetoric. And the Corinthians were going gaga over the propaganda, persuasive, entertaining, um, you know, wish you off your feet because I've emotionally moved you. They were going with that. Corinth was swept up in that. And Paul is saying, I didn't come like a sophist. I didn't come to simply persuade you. I came to convince you of the truth of Jesus Christ. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. One of the things that Paul did when he came to Corinth was he set to work as a leather worker or whether he sewed canvas or just what he precisely did, we don't know. But he was an artisan. He wasn't a, uh, a teacher. He came into the community as, in a way, a blue-collar laborer worker. Um, and he didn't come the way you would come if you were strategizing if you were establishing a technique to convince the Corinthians of the truth. No, he came like a really normal person. And why? Verse 4, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. Now, he, he's playing with the word wise because he is imminently wise, but not with wise and persuasive words as the sophist would think, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. One of the things in the life of the church is to continually rely upon the Spirit's power and not our ability to maneuver, to manipulate, to kind of convince um, in a humanistic way, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith not, might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Isn't that beautifully said? Uh, now, what we'll do next week is trace uh, how Paul takes every issue in the letter that he's going to address and in some way interjects the place of the cross. And so he's not sort of saying, I'm going to reduce the gospel down to its simplest form. I resolved into nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I've been to Athens. That didn't work. I went to the university town. I tried to philosophize with him. I tried to reason with him. That didn't work. He's not at all disqualifying the way he approached Athens. He approached them both, I think, in, in the same fundamental way. But then he takes this cross, and it's a, he's basically saying, it's not that I'm not going to talk about everything else, but as I talk about everything else, I'm going to plant the cross. I'm going to plant the cross of Jesus Christ because that's the basis for our community. That's the basis for our ethic. That's the basis for our worship. That's the basis for our fellowship. 
Jesus Christ and him crucified. Certainly implying in one of the most beautiful chapters in, in Corinthians is t- dedicated to the resurrection. So this includes the incarnation. This includes our whole salvation history drama. It includes all of that, and at the center of it is Jesus Christ in him crucified. Fran? Um, at some point in this class, I was wondering if you would have time to address a question I've been thinking about lately, which is why crucifixion? Why the horror, and it keeps coming up, Jesus Christ and him crucified. You, mm-hmm. you, you know, Jesus could have been stoned or burned or guillotined or something kinder, gentler. But it seems that you don't hear much about why. Is there something about that? Why crucifixion? So, yeah, I mean, if you have to sure, address that because I will address it. Yeah. But it's important to remember that. Mm-hmm. It is. Not that he just died a martyr's death. Right. I, I, you know, a quick answer to that. I don't. I don't think he's exalting kind of the Roman manner of crucif- uh, crucifixion as much as the manner of this costly, world-denying, hanging on a tree sacrifice, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, hanging on a tree and Roman crucifixion are are kind of one and the same. Uh, but we'll talk about that. Uh, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and may he give you his peace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.